Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about this idea that references are important. For instance, if you apply for a job, they're going to ask you to list some references, aren't they? If you want to rent an apartment, they're going to say, hey, do you have a few references? If you want to apply for a loan, they're going to say, well, let's take a look at your credit history, see how things are. You know, even if we lived in a perfect world, uh, you know, then I, I suppose then our statements would, about who we are and what we are like would, would be sufficient, but we don't live in that perfect world, do we? And, and by experience, each of us, each of us knows that a person can claim pretty much anything they want, but that doesn't mean that it's true. The person could be telling the truth, but then again, perhaps they are lying or they're deceived themselves in some way. And so references are needed to help verify that the person is honest and their claims are true. Well, we're in this series looking at the Gospel of the Apostle John, and he wrote this account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ because he wanted us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. John will confirm those claims of Jesus by many witnesses as we work our way through the Gospel of John. But today, we're going to look at the first detailed human witness concerning Jesus as the promised Messiah, the son of the living God. A man by a name, the, the name of John the baptizer. And so as I mentioned, our text today is John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Now before we jump into that text, it's really important to recognize now we're, con we're considering two very different men, right? And they're both named John. That can be a little confusing. So we're talking about the Apostle John, who is the author of this gospel that we're journeying through together. And today we're also talking about John the baptizer. He is a cousin of Jesus. He is a, a prominent preacher in Israel prior to Jesus' uh, beginning his own ministry. And so uh, we're going to, for... for uh, just clarity's sake today, I'm going to call him John A and John B, okay? John the Apostle, John the Baptizer, John A and B. And we're going to start with John B, John the Baptizer, one of the more unique individuals that we meet in Scripture. When we first meet him, he's a young man, perhaps in his, just his early 30s, just six months older than Jesus himself. He was a guy that dressed rather strangely, even for that day. He didn't wear the common kind of flowing robes of the time. Instead, he dressed in animal skins. And instead of eating things like wheat bread and stews and figs, he ate a, a strange diet of grasshoppers and wild honey. Well, this, this young man had a very powerful message, though, that seemed to have great attraction to people. At first, they came out to see him by dozens, and then by hundreds, and eventually by thousands. They were coming out of the cities of Judah and Galilee to hear this remarkable preacher as he proclaimed his message out in the desert places. And finally, the, the response was so tremendous, and, and John became so popular that even the, the religious establishment, the leaders back in Jerusalem, they had, to, they had to take note. What is going on out there in the desert? And so they sent a, a delegation. They said, get out there and figure out what's happening. Why is everybody going out to hear this guy? And so John the Apostle 
records for us this moment when the leaders of the Jews first took notice of John the baptizer. And this is found in chapter 1 of our gospel, beginning in verse 19. We're going to read verses 19 through 23. And I'd like to invite you to read it with me. The words are on the screen. Let's begin. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Amen. The word of God. So, this is an official delegation sent out from the, the leadership of Jerusalem, a group called the Sanhedrin. This was the highest ruling religious body of all of Judaism. We might think of it today sort of like a, a combination of the Supreme Court and the Senate. And, and they had been sent by the high priest himself. So think kind of like the president. So this is an important delegation. And, and the leaders back in, in Jerusalem are not happy about what's going on with this guy John out there in the desert. He is, after all, an outsider. He's a maverick. He's an unbalanced radical. He hadn't gone to seminary. He hadn't been mentored by any of the prominent rabbis of the day. He hadn't been authorized by any official body. He had never been ordained. And suddenly, he just comes out of nowhere, out of the common people. And now thousands, thousands of people are flocking out to hear him, and not just hear him, but to be baptized there in the waters of the Jordan River. The establishment could no longer ignore him. He was a threat to them, to their authority, to their power, to their hold on the people. And so they send this delegation to say, what is going on? And so when we read that the delegation's first question to John the Baptist is, who are you? I want you to hear that more in, uh, uh, you know, kind of like this. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are anyway? That's, I think, probably the tone. Maybe a sneer in the words as they come out and see John out there. And it's clear. It's clear that they've asked him about kind of a popular rumor that perhaps John is the Messiah himself. But John B.'s reply, which John the Apostle puts very dramatically in verse 20 is, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. This is clearly emphasizing the fact that John wanted one thing to be completely clear. He was not the Messiah, the promised one that so many had been waiting for. It would have been easy for him to take those accolades and take the power and the prestige and say, I am the guy. Look at all these people out here to see me. But that's not what John was about. And so they tried again and said, okay then, if you're not the Messiah, are you uh, Elijah then? They asked him this, of course, because in the very last verse of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, is a promise 
a promise of the coming again of Elijah. In Malachi 4, 5, it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this second Elijah would have a, a special ministry uh, uh, in verse 6, it says, of turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. In other words, the second, second Elijah was coming to rebuild the homes and the families of a decadent nation. And so now 400 years has passed since that prophecy. And there's been no other prophets that have come to Israel in that 400-year period. For four centuries, there's been an, a sense of expectation there in Israel that Elijah was going to come back again. Now, they could look back into their history and they had heard the stories about Elijah. He himself had been a pretty rugged individual in the way he dressed, and the way he spoke. He was a fearless prophet. And sometimes he even called down judgment upon uh, people that were opposed to God or the enemies of, of God's people. And so when people heard and when they saw John B. with his rugged countenance and his fearless message, many of them were asking, is this... Elijah, the one that we've heard about, that our ancestors have taught us about. And so this is why the delegation asked him, are you Elijah? But John's reply again is very clear. No, I am not Elijah. And this is an important verse for us to just uh, consider for just a moment here. You know, as you read through the Gospels, sometimes the Gospels treat John the baptizer as if he were Elijah and even refers to him as such. In fact, Jesus himself, on one occasion, when he's talking with his disciples, speaking about John the Baptist, in uh, Mark 9, 13, this is recorded, Jesus says, I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. So what in the world does Jesus mean here? Well, the answer is given very clearly in the opening of Luke's gospel. Where Luke records, you might remember this story, the visit of the angel Gabriel. And he comes to Zechariah, who is John the baptizer's dad. And the angel predicted that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth, this old couple who were long past the years of childbearing, that they would have a child by a miraculous birth. And his name was to be called John, which in Hebrew literally means God is gracious. And God, not Zachariah, selected that name for that baby boy. God is gracious. And the angel said of John the baptizer, he shall go before the Lord in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. So, there is the fulfillment of the Old Testament predictions that before the Lord would appear, Elijah the prophet would come. And John's ministry was like Elijah's. He went before Jesus in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. But he was not Elijah. Well, so then the delegation asks, okay, you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah. Who are you then? Are you the prophet? The prophet. Well, what, what are they doing there? They're referring to another popular expectation of the people at that time, that one of the prophets of old was going to return. Some thought it would be Jeremiah, 
But others, because they didn't know, they just called him the prophet. And people were waiting for the prophet. And so to this question, when they say, are you the prophet? John's response simply is no. And I want you to notice something here, the increasing bluntness of John's answers. Are you the Messiah? Oh, no, I'm not. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? No. Finally, they say it. Who are you then? Basically, they're saying, come on, we can't go back to Jerusalem to our bosses without an answer. We've been sent to find out who you are. Give us a break, John. Tell us something we can take back to Jerusalem. Maybe there's even a lessening of this belligerence here. And they begin to say, come on, man, who, who do you think you are? I mean, what's going on here? But finally, they just end up saying, come on, help us out. We need to tell them something about you. And so to that, John answers in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said, John quotes right out of Isaiah 40, verse 3. In other words, he says, if you want to know my job description, if you want to know who I am, read the prophet Isaiah. It's all written out there for you. Well, this, of course, indicates that John himself had learned about who he was and what he was to do by reading and studying the prophets, including the prophecy of Isaiah. Now, undoubtedly, his parents had told him the wonderful story of his birth and the prediction of the angel. And he knew from childhood that he was chosen specially of the Lord. In fact, Scripture says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. But when he asked himself, perhaps when he was a young boy, well, I wonder what God wants me to do. The only place that he would find an answer would be in the prophets. And in Isaiah, Isaiah says, I am to be a highway builder. Perhaps he got that from Isaiah, a highway builder. I'm to prepare the road in the desert for our God. And he, John is there to do that, not for men to get to God. That's not John's job, to get men to God. But John's job is for God to get to men, to get them ready so that God can get to men. Isaiah in Isaiah 40 tells us how the highways are built when he says every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. You know, if you were to ask somebody that's a modern day road builder, they would tell you that's how roads are built. That's how a highway is built. The low spots are filled in, the high spots are leveled out, the crooked ones are straightened out and the rough ones are made smooth. And so this beautiful description of John's ministry to people is still the way that repentance works in the human heart today. Friends, if you have ever felt low or worthless or depressed or insignificant or that your life is meaningless, if you have felt that you're in a valley, guess what? Look to God and he will lift you up. Every valley shall be lifted up. That is where God will meet you. Maybe we're feeling a bit proud and self-sufficient. I can handle things myself. I'll take care of my own affairs. Thank you very much. Then we might need to come down. Every mountain and hill will be made low. That is where God will meet us. Where we need to be. If we're handling things in a crooked manner in our life, 
we're devious, maybe in our business dealings, if we're untrustworthy in our relationships with others, then we need to what? Repent, change our ways. That is what John the baptizer preached, a message of repentance, a change of mind and heart that leads to a change in action. We need to decide to straighten out our life. And guess what? God will meet us right there. If we're given to riding roughshod over people, if our life is filled with some tough and rough situations, we can repent, we can change our mind, we can decide to smooth out those places, deal with those things, and God will meet us there to help us do just that. That is the highway for God to come to us. That was what John the baptizer's message in ministry all through his life was about. And the symbol of that was to be baptized with water, to be cleansed of the old ways. And so, having clarified his own role, John now reveals the main reason he came to, to the people, came on the scene. And the main reason is this, John came to identify Jesus. That's his main job. To identify Jesus. And he identifies Jesus, we're going to see in the text today, in four distinct ways. And he does that over two days in our text. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. But before we get to those four ways, look at verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. That's this visiting party. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. What do you think you're doing, John? You see, baptizing was kind of a new thing in Israel. No, no prophet of the past had ever practiced baptism. Now, under the law, there were certain washings and ceremonies for those who were unclean or who had defiled themselves in some ceremonial way. And there were even places in the temple where people could go through those washings. For instance, new converts into Judaism would wash themselves before they entered the ranks of Judaism, but nobody, nobody went around baptizing as John was doing. And so when they asked him, why do you do this? What are you doing out there in the, in the muddy river, dunking all these people under the water? What they're doing is they're emphasizing the right, the action. What are you doing, John? What are you performing out there? And look at verses 26 through 28. John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John's words are in answer to that question. Why are you baptizing? And he simply points out that the emphasis was not on what he was doing, but on the contrast was on who he was compared to Jesus. And so when he said, I baptize with water, you might expect that he would go on to speak of one who would baptize with the Spirit. But he doesn't do that. In fact, that doesn't come until the next day. He will do that, but here he doesn't do that. In the construction of this sentence, the emphatic word is not water. They're not saying, why do you baptize with water? Or John says, I, don't, I baptize with water. He's making an emphasis on himself. I, I 
baptized with water. That is, I am simply dealing with externals, things you can see. That's my ministry. But there is one standing among you. And by the way, John, when he says that, he says it's written in the way of somebody is there right that moment in a continuing way. There is one here with you at this moment standing among you right now who you do not know whose dignity, whose person is such that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoestrings. And so it's clear from this passage that Jesus, I want you to picture this, the crowds, the people there, the authorities questioning John, all of this is going there, there's a big gathering, and Jesus is in the midst of that crowd. He's standing there. That helps us know when this event took place. When we compare John's gospel with the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's evident that the incident that's recorded here that we're looking at today took place at least six weeks after Jesus had been baptized by John right there in that very Jordan River. John will say the next day that it had already taken place. So according to the other Gospels, if you might remember this story, after Jesus was baptized, he immediately went out into the desert, into the wilderness, and he had that remarkable experience of being tested by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights, tempted by the devil. And all of that had already taken place when this delegation shows up saying, what's going on here? Who's in charge? What are you doing, John? We're here to investigate. And by this time, Jesus had come back from the wilderness. And now he was standing in that crowd. And John, of course, recognizes him, knows who he is. And he says to that delegation, there is one standing among you whom you don't know, but I know him. And I know that he is far greater than I am. So if you're questioning my authority, boy, wait till you hear the authority of this guy. And so now we come to John's first way of identifying Jesus. We're going to look at four of these. Number one, Jesus fulfills. Jesus fulfills all prophetic predictions. How did John know that? Well, he undoubtedly learned it from studying in Isaiah and other prophets, the prophecies of the Messiah. His words, there is one standing here among you that you don't know. Maybe that sent chills down the spines of some of those people present. Maybe people are starting to crane their necks and peer around. What's he talking about? Who's here? What's what's going on? Now, he doesn't identify Jesus any further at this point, except to imply he is the one whom the prophecies are speaking about, who's far greater than I. He came after me in time, but he was also before me in time. That's the significance of his statement in verse 30. After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. If we read through the scriptures of Isaiah, we would see what John learned. Isaiah predicted. He predicted the coming of one who would be born as a babe to a virgin. He predicted that that child would grow up and that the government would be on his shoulder and that his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He would be the one who would emerge at last in that tremendously descriptive passage in Isaiah 53 as the one who would bear upon himself 
the sins of mankind. Listen to this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the one, on him, the iniquity of us all. John the Baptist learned all of this and more from Isaiah. And so he says, in effect, I'm in Isaiah too, but I'm merely a voice in the wilderness. Listen to what I say because I'm talking about one who is way more important than me. In his eternal character and in the nature of the work that he will perform, he's so far above me that compared to me, I'm just the servant who takes off the shoes of the master when he comes into the house. And I'm not even worthy to do that. In other words, the one is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. He is the prophet. From the very beginning of the Old Testament, there is a whispering hope that gives, grows stronger and stronger all through the record of the Old Testament. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. In the promise all the way back in the garden to Adam and Eve as they're driven out of the garden, there is hope that there is one who is coming who would bruise the serpent's head. That's Jesus. The hope increases through the whole of prophetic record as an ever-growing promise. But by the end of the Old Testament, by the book of Malachi, guess what? The one, the prophet, the Messiah, he's still not come. And so the Old Testament is a book of unfulfilled prophecies. And now John announces that there is one, the one, standing among them who is the fulfillment of all of those prophetic prophecies. Jesus fulfills. Next, John identifies a second truth about Jesus. Number two, Jesus removes. Jesus removes the sin of the world. Look at verses 29 through 31. The next day, the next day after this confrontation takes place, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed in Israel. And so once again, if we look through the Old Testament, we're, we'll find that it is an, a, a revelation of unexplained sacrifices. There's all kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Have you noticed that? Go all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve's son, uh, or excuse me, uh, yeah, that's right, Adam and Eve's son, Abel. Abel, what did he do? He offered a lamb to God, and God smiled on that sacrifice. What was that about? Later, Abraham made offerings to God. And then later, the children of Israel were taught at the foot of Mount Sinai to bring certain animals to slay and to offer the blood and the meat of those animals to God. And many who read through the Old Testament are even at times offended by the fact that the Old Testament is full of pictures of animal sacrifices, of actual blood being spilled. What is that all about? Do you know that every morning and every evening there were animals slain in the temple? In Jerusalem. And on the great days, the feast days of Israel, 
when the people would gather by the hundreds of thousands, they would come. And thousands of animals were sacrificed there in the temple. A stream of blood would run. That stream of blood runs all the way through the Old Testament. But do you know something else that's interesting to me? Nowhere are these sacrifices ever fully explained. In Leviticus, we read, the life of the flesh is in the blood. And so it's clear, it's clear that there would be no removal of sin without the shedding of blood. But nowhere is it fully explained why God demands this blood. Every sacrifice, however was a testimony, a witness. We talked about it at the beginning. A testimony or a witness that someone was coming. Someone was coming. Someone who would supply the explanation. And now there is at last an answer. An answer to the cry of Isaac. Remember when Abraham was taking his own son up on the mountain? He was told to sacrifice his own son you remember what Isaac said? Father, where's the lamb? And you remember Abraham's response? God will provide a lamb. That was a response of faith. He didn't know why or how or what was going on here. He was just following God's directions. And he believed that God would provide. And God did. Now centuries later, as John sees Jesus coming towards the crowd... Can you just picture John in front of the crowd? Here comes Jesus the next day. And he says, behold. Look, everybody, behold. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You remember that six weeks earlier when Jesus came to be baptized. Remember, and John says, yeah, you, should, you should be baptizing me. I mean, what's going on here, Jesus? And he saw, what did he see there? He saw the Holy Spirit descend around Jesus. And he understands then that Jesus is the Lamb. Here is the one, the one who will fulfill all the promises of all the scriptures of the Old Testament. And so in our text when John says, I myself did not know him, what's he saying there? He says, I, he means I didn't know him as the Messiah. The Lamb of God. I didn't realize that my cousin, this kid that I grew up with, was the one, the Messiah, the Son of God. I didn't know that until just a few weeks ago. But now here I am to tell all of you, he is the Lamb of God. I mean, these two boys had grown up together in this close-knit Hebrew culture. Of course they knew each other. But you might remember that even Jesus' own brothers didn't understand who he was, though they grew up with him. And so John says, I didn't know who he was. I heard some strange things about him, just like I'd learned some strange things about myself along the way. But I didn't know who he was until I came baptizing with water and he showed up. I was sent to baptize in order that I might come to know who he is so that you can know who he is. Jesus is the one who removes the sin of the world. In verse 32, John identifies a third truth about Jesus. Let's look at that. 
And that is that Jesus baptizes. Just like John baptizes, Jesus baptizes, but he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so in verse 32 it says, and John bore witness. That means he's announcing this to everybody. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so it's revealed to John by God himself in that moment. Jesus is the one. And again, if we look through the Old Testament, we find in it a, a deep sense of unsatisfied longings. From the very beginning of the Bible, people are longing after something more. They're longing after righteousness and holiness, longing to be better than they are, longing to be free from the struggle of, of evil within, wishing somehow they could get a hold of the brokenness and the sin-centered tendencies, the self-centered tendencies within themselves and just get rid of it. Have you ever felt that way yourself? You know, there's been times in my life where I wished, I wished that I, I could have a surgical operation to remove some of my tendencies to be sharp or critical or judgmental. And when I saw that I caused hurt to others, I, I wished that I could somehow just stop doing those things or undo the pain that I was responsible for bringing. You know, that kind of longing, that's been in the human heart ever since the beginning when sin came into this world through Adam and Eve. All through the Bible, the record of that longing increases as men and women cry out for a way of deliverance, to be free from the power and the reign and the terror and the grip of sin. They long for beauty of character, for reality of life, and for freedom from evil. But the record of Scripture is that it takes God Himself to do that. The work of the Holy Spirit is to do that very thing. And so what John B. here is saying, he's saying, I, I deal with externals, with what provokes people's change of mind so that their actions might begin to change. But John says, that, that's as far as I can go. But when I baptized Jesus, I saw the Spirit coming down like a dove hovering around him. The one who sent me to baptize has said to me, when you see that happening, that is the one who will not only change men and women on the outside, but will change them from the inside by the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And when that happened, I knew who he was, John says. My own cousin, Jesus of Nazareth, was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. You know, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the early church, he teaches us a little bit about this baptism of the Holy Spirit. I want to read just one verse there. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where Paul writes, For in one spirit, we who were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. That's a very significant statement for us, folks. If we're followers of Jesus, 
For in one spirit we were all, all believers in Jesus, all. How much? All. All. All were baptized into one body and have all been made to drink of one spirit. You see, friends, what, what Paul's talking about there is you, you can't be a Christian and not be baptized by the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not something that you feel. It's not some mystical experience that happens to you. But it's something that just is true. It is a change deep within you, within your humanity. A change that God himself does when he breaks you loose from the family of fallen, rebellious humanity and he places you into his eternal family, the family of God. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said it would happen to all who receive him. Later on in John, when we get to chapter 7, we'll look at this more in depth, but in chapter 7, listen to these great words. These are the words of Jesus. He who believes in me, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive. Again, that is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it comes when we are born again. When we participate in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus as we saw Sean do today. Scripture tells us that when we are baptized, that not only do we receive forgiveness of sins, but we receive what? The gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, John understood that his ministry was limited. That he could only go so far by encouraging people and calling them to repent, to change their actions. He could express in some dramatic, symbolic fashion that uh, the changed desire of a heart um, wanted to, to do what is right, but he couldn't change those people. And in reality, the people couldn't change themselves. That had to be a work of God himself, the work of Jesus. And so from that time on, Jesus has been the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. When we enter the family of God, he is the one who does it. Scripture teaches that when we are baptized, we immediately receive the gift. Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfiller of promises. He is the Lamb of God, the climax of all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament. He is the satisfier of the longings we have for purity and freedom. He is the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. So, if Jesus does all those things, those three things we've just looked at and many more, if he does all that, he is one more thing. As we wrap this up, we see that Jesus is the Son of God. That is John's final statement in verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John says, I'm his reference, all right? Call me up and I'll be a reference. He is the Son of God. I was there when God spoke. I was there at his baptism. I heard, I saw the Holy Spirit. I bear witness and more than that, though, this is a claim to deity on behalf of Jesus. 
Every Hebrew would understand that if you say someone is the son of something, that you're claiming that they are characterized by that very thing. If you say he's a son of peace, he's characterized by peace. If he's a son of encouragement, that's his leading characteristic. Last week, remember we talked about John the Apostle, the author of our gospel. John A. was called a son of thunder because of his temper and his temperament. And so friends, if Jesus is the Son of God. What does that mean? He is God himself. He represents everything that God is and does in a physical, real way. Jesus is the Son of God. And that is the claim that John B. makes here. And by the way, that is a greater claim than to say Jesus is the Messiah. Think about this for a moment. As the Messiah... The Savior, Jesus, is no longer on this planet, is he? As the Messiah, 2,000 years ago, he died and was buried and rose again and he ascended into heaven and he's been there ever since, seated to the right hand of the Father, waiting to come back again. That's where the Messiah is. He is not here as the Messiah, but as the Son of God, as God in the flesh, God with us, he is the one standing right here in our midst. Through his Holy Spirit, he inhabits his people each and every moment. And so verse 34 is the climax of John the baptizer's testimony. The purpose of the ministry of John B. was to prepare the way of the Messiah. He was to announce his coming, call people to repentance and preparation for it, and he was to identify Jesus. And John didn't shirk from his calling. He pointed people away from himself and toward Jesus, the Son of God. And by the way, this also ties directly into the Apostle John's stated purpose for writing the gospel. Remember, John A. presents all of this detail in his gospel because his desire is what? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so John the baptizer is the first witness presented, the first evidence to this truth of Jesus as the Son of God. John the Apostle's Gospel account will present to us much more evidence for us as he unfolds the story of the life of Jesus as we examine this Gospel. I want to close with this little story. A minister was in Italy taking a tour and there he saw the grave of a man who had died several centuries before the man had been an unbeliever and completely opposed to Christianity. But he was a little afraid of it too. So prior to his death, it seems that this man had arranged to have a, a huge stone slab put over his grave so that he would not have to be raised from the dead in just in case there is a resurrection of the dead. In fact, on that stone slab, he had several insignias put saying, I don't want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe in it. Carved into stone. Well, evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into that grave. And so several hundred years later, this acorn has grown up 
through that grave, split that slab, and it is now a tall, towering oak tree. Isn't that cool? And so the minister looked at it and he asked, if an acorn, if an acorn which has, has the, the power of biological life in it can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a person's life? Friends, the moment that we are born again and receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit comes into our life. It is the power of the resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And so I want you just to think of the things in your life that you might seem, see as like an immovable slab. Maybe it's your bitterness or your insecurity or your fears your self-doubts, those things can be split and rolled away the more that you know Him, the more that you grow in the power of His Holy Spirit living within you. Do you believe already? Then rejoice in Him. Do you still have doubts? Then consider the testimony, the references, and keep your mind open to the evidence that is to come. Jesus is the Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He is the eternal one. He is the one who baptizes with his Holy Spirit because he is the Son of God. That is what John declared. There is one standing among you, and he is the fulfiller of all of the promises of old. All of the predictions. He is the satisfier of all the unfilled longings because he is the Son of God. And that is the good news for today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the power of your word. Father, we thank you for the importance of these eyewitness accounts and this testimony, these references from real people who serve to remind us, Lord, of your plan and your purpose for each of us. Father, thank you for inviting us to step into the power of the resurrection. Father, for those of us who have accepted that invitation, Father, we pray that we might be open to the work of your Spirit as you guide and direct and convict and lead us. Lord, that we would not be arrogant and and self-willed, but Lord, that we would be humble. Lord, that we would be, wi be willing to be molded by your Spirit. And Lord, for those of us who have yet to make that choice, Lord, I pray that your Spirit will be working in powerful ways to draw each of us fully to you, to submit to you as Lord, Savior, and Spirit giver. Bless us this day, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to let you know that some of our elders are here to pray with you today in the prayer corner back there. And that's their great privilege and honor. Important ministry. And so if you've got a burden, if you've got a question, if you need some guidance, they're there to pray with you and for you. I encourage you to make your way back there as we sing. Let's stand together as the ladies lead us in this final song. burden
Thank you.